Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 1. Read the first four verses. This is what the Word says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, that's Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like, a, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Wayne Gretzky, Bill Russell, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, Usain Bolt, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, Pele, Muhammad Ali, Michael Phelps. What do all these names have in common? They don't play the same sports. They don't do the same thing. Some of them are old enough that some of you don't know who they are. But all of these people are on the list, if you Google it, of goats. Now, I'm not being derogatory. For some of you who don't know, that term's not a derision. It's a superlative. It's a compliment to be a goat. It stands for the greatest of all time. Now, if you get into the debate of the greatest of all time, it becomes a debate instantly. So Google it sometimes. Who are the goats? And then the question is, who are the greatest goats? And then who are the greatest amongst the greatest goats? And then the, the, from there on, there is a long line of statistics. Well, this person won so many championships. Well, this person would have if those championships were being played at the time. And this person went on and had a greater career afterwards and all these sort of things. And the question is never answered who is the greatest of all time? To be titled the greatest of all time is a pretty amazing recognition. So just to get on the list, to be big enough, to be successful enough to even make the list of those who are being debated as the greatest of all time, that's a pretty big deal. Sometimes just, just Google who is the greatest of all time and, and you'll find a long list of a lot of these debates of who is and who isn't, who should be, and who's, who's been forgotten and that's the other thing. You may be the greatest of all time in your day, but after so many years passes, nobody remembers. And so you're forgotten. Being the greatest is a desire that is common to every generation and every culture. We want to be great. And in whatever endeavor you do, whether it be politics, whether it be social work, whether it be within the church, whether it be athletics, whatever endeavor it is you do, what, even ath uh, um, uh, uh, academics, whatever it is that you do, you, there's a desire in each of us. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be as common and bland and normal today as possible. No, we want to be great. We want our name on a plaque somewhere. We want to be recognized on the stage. There's something deep within all of us that wants to be Great. So the disciples have been listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom. And they're pretty clear on the fact that Jesus is going to be the king of the kingdom. They've got that part. And they're thinking amongst themselves, 
we're the men that are the closest to Jesus. We've been hanging around him. We've been living and breathing and eating with him. And we're his closest companions. So out of us, surely one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom next to Jesus. And so they begin to talk amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? John's going to be you? Mark's thinking, no, it's going to be me, Luke, me. So all they're, they're all having this debate. Who is going to be the greatest? And so that leads them to ask Jesus. Jesus, tell us. And I think in the question is two things. Number one, they want Jesus to identify who's going to be the greatest, and maybe they just want Jesus to give them some information. How do you become the greatest? What's the skill set we need to have? What's the accomplishments we need to do? What are the tasks that we need to accomplish so that we can be the greatest? And as so often happens with Jesus, they ask one question, but Jesus gives another answer because they're really asking the wrong question. And in fact, Jesus kind of blows up their question pretty pretty big. So this morning, very simple. I just want you to see two things out of this passage. Number one, it matters that you seek what matters. If you're chasing after a, a worthless goal, you may attain it, but you've attained nothing. So number one, make sure you're seeking what matters. And secondly, the way you find greatness in the kingdom of God is through repentance. Greatness in the kingdom of God only comes through repentance. Seek what matters. Greatness through repentance. Let's begin with seeking what matters. So Jesus wanted these men to seek what had real value and real worth. So the question that you ask oftentimes reveals what you desire. So what you're asking, what you're thinking about, what you're pondering, what you're desiring, that, that's demonstrating what has captured the, the desire of your heart. And when you focus on the wrong thing, you'll ask the wrong questions. They're focused on greatness, and so they're asking the wrong question. And if you'll notice in the passage, when they ask who can be greatest, Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says, boys, what you really need to know is how do you actually get in the kingdom, not how you become great in the kingdom. They're asking the wrong questions. They're seeking the wrong thing. The question that the disciples ask is the wrong questions. They want to know how to be great in the kingdom of God, how to increase their standing in the kingdom of God, how each of them ranks in the kingdom of God. But Jesus ignores their question and gives them the right answer. And the right answer is repent and become like children. That is not what they wanted to hear. I think it probably was pretty shocking to them Children in the first century were seen very differently than what children are in our century. So when we talk about children, we say they're, they're our future. We, we uh, spend a lot of money socially on children. Even in the church, I was, as I was preparing, I thought, you know, the, the, the largest amount of square footage in this building is devoted to children. Probably the largest part of our budget is spent on children and youth. And so in our, in our day, we very much value children. We understand the responsibility we have. But in the first century, children were seen as um, less than objects. And so you really didn't have value, particularly in the Roman idea. You didn't have value until you developed worth. And worth came through either wealth or power. And children had neither. So they were really seen as sort of the, the, the bystanders, the, the, the side in the, in the wings of society. No adult would have given preference to a child, and no one would have elevated a child as someone or something to be emulated or imitated. And Jesus pulls a kid to him, and he goes, this is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. It would have blown their mind. There's much grace in the way Jesus answered their question. He could have said to them, 
That's ridiculous and stupid. He could have said, you've all got it wrong. Come back when you figure it out. But Jesus demonstrates grace in that despite their wrong question, he gives them the right answer. How often do you ask the wrong things in prayer? How often do you seek God with the wrong intentions and the wrong desires? What grace it is that God responds to us, not with chastisement, but with grace, giving us the right answer to our wrong questions. Jesus desires for these men to know the truth. And friends, I believe Jesus desires for you to know the truth as well. So what Jesus instructs them is you need to move your attention away from the question of who's the greatest and draw it to the more important question of how do you actually enter the kingdom of heaven? In fact, he's pointing them to understand you need to seek what has eternal value, not momentary value. The disciples needed to seek more than greatness in the kingdom, uh, uh, great, more than just greatness in the kingdom. They needed to seek entrance to the kingdom. Knowing what and who is great in the kingdom is pointless if you're not entering the kingdom. Do you get that? If you can't get entrance, it doesn't matter what happens afterwards. Often when studying this passage, the attention is given primarily to what it means to repent like a child. And that's certainly important. But I think the most important thing at this moment is first to consider, do you even have entrance into the kingdom of heaven? These men who were closer to Jesus than any other person assumed that they were going to be in the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't you have thought the same thing? There's nobody in the world that's closer physically, relationally, than these 12 men who had been spending time with Jesus, hearing everything that he taught, seeing everything that he did. They're making the assumption, the dangerous assumption, that they are, of course, going to enter and be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus turns their world upside down and says, you need to quit worrying about greatness in the kingdom. You need to worry about whether or not you're getting in the kingdom. Verse 3 must have been unsettling to hear. Unless you turn. If you're reading out of the New American Standard Version, it says, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom. There are two kind of lost people, at least two kind of lost people today. There are those who are lost and know it, and there are those who are lost and don't know it. Now, I want to say to you, friends, that the most dangerous place to be in this, this side of heaven is to be lost and not know it. The lost and know it, they know their sin. They're aware of their shame and guilt. They know they're separated from God, and they're hoping to find truth and hope today. That's a good place to be, friends, to be lost and know it. But there is a group that is lost and don't know it. And oftentimes, this is the crazy thing, oftentimes those are the people who are very religious. They're like the disciples. They're, who could be more religious, at least in relationship with Jesus, than the disciples? But they don't know that they don't yet have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The lost but don't know it group are often doing religious things, doing good things. They may know a lot about Jesus. And in their doing good and religious things and great knowledge, they're assuming that those things have given them cachet. Those things have given them entrance into God's kingdom. And that's why I think it's the most dangerous group to be in. Because they put all of their hope and all of their assurance for eternity on their own work, which is worthless. 
Friends, seek first to be right with God. Seek first to have entrance into the kingdom of God. Seek first what God demands of you. And as you do, recognize what is true. So often when seeking truth, we begin with what we want to believe. Then we go looking for support for our opinions. The disciples had witnessed some of the dramatic events in recent days recorded in the previous chapter. They had seen uh, Jesus heal a demon-possessed man. They, They had heard reports of Peter, James, and John who had gone up on the mountain and seen the transfiguration. In verse 22 and 23, the previous chapter, Jesus foretold his death and resurrection. They'd heard those words. In 24 through 27, Peter receives money for for paying taxes through a miracle of Jesus. They had seen some amazing things. And having witnessed all these and so much more, they still have as their top concern position and power. It may have been that the three disciples seeing the transfiguration and Peter also having received the tax money by a miracle had had caused some jealousy in the others. Maybe because of that experience, maybe they were making the case, maybe the others were just jealous, but I can absolutely see the the case being made by some of those, those disciples going, well, you know, we were on the mountain with Jesus. I don't know where you boys were, but we were on the mountain with Jesus. So when you think about greatness, surely... We've got at least that on our resume that helps us a little bit further up. They all believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but only as a political, earthly Savior. The truth is that Jesus has established the kingdom of God, but it wasn't going to be a political kingdom. It wasn't going to be a political party. It wasn't going to be an empire of men. It was going to be a spiritual kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will not last. Rome is no more. The kingdom of God is established forever, and as it grows, it never stops. Jesus was not going to be another king in a long line of earthly kings. Jesus is the Messiah who saves us from sin and makes a way for us to be children of God and citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted to understand that's the truth, gentlemen. That's the thing that you need to be looking for. Not material things, not earthly things, not worldly kingdoms, not greatness according to men. You need to be great according to God and have interest into the kingdom of God by believing on Jesus and salvation. So the question is, How do you become great in the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers that question by pointing to a child. Look with me me back in your passage. So verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, if you're reading out of the New American Standard, it says, unless you are converted and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's the first issue. You need to first be converted. Turn. Turn from what? Your sin and yourself. Turn to Jesus and his truth. That's how you get entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains greatness. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, here is the absolute hardest, most difficult truth to understand about the gospel. Listen to me carefully. Greatness comes through Repentance. According to men, 
According to the way of man, when we want to demonstrate greatness, we don't think first of humility. We think first of bragging. We think first of power, of strength, of ability, of success, of something to point to and brag about. But Jesus points to a child. A child who in this moment had no rights, was not even considered a full, complete person. He says, you have to be humble like this child to be great in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, just a couple things. Number one, humility leads to repentance. The example of the child and the teaching that we must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven is not a command to be childlike. Listen to me very carefully. This does not mean that you have to be childlike in your intellect. This doesn't mean that you have to be ignorant or, 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 or clueless about things. Children have some attributes that are certainly admirable. They're open-minded. They're trusting. But children also have some attributes that are not so positive, so they lack the ability to focus. Have you been around a three-year-old lately? They don't, I mean, they, they'll give you three minutes, five minutes, but don't ask them to sit down and listen to something for 30 minutes, an hour, or whatever. They, they just can't do that. They're foolish and easily deceived. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, it's like taking candy from a baby? It's not hard to take candy from a baby. You can just physically take it from them, or you can trick them from it. I, I, had, a, I had a cousin, I, it definitely wasn't me, I would not ever do such a thing like this, but my cousin used to go to his, his, his little sister and he would find brand new pennies. And he'd go to his little sister and he says, I'll trade you this beautiful, bright, shiny penny for those old ugly quarters. Every time she'd do it. Was that right? No, but it was easy. Because his sister didn't understand the difference between a quarter and a, and a penny and those sort of things. The teaching here is not that, that Christians should be childlike or childish. It's a better word there. It's not saying that we should be gullible or foolish or unintelligent. In fact, verse 4 makes clear that Jesus is pointing to humility specifically. He says, Whenever, uh, whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, repentance begins with humility. Now, the word that is translated as turn in the ESV and converted in the New American Standard literally means to, uh, to change one's manner of life with implication of turning toward God, to change one's ways, to turn to God. The word that we most often use in the church world is to repent, physically to turn from one direction into another. That's why I think the ESV gets it best here when it uses the, the English word turn. Unless you turn, turn from what? Turn from your own prideful arrogance and turning to Jesus. Turn from your own will and way to the will and way of God. Repentance is to turn away from sin and self and turn to Jesus and His righteousness. Now in one way, repentance sounds so simple and easy. Repent and be saved is what John preached. Repent and be saved is what preachers all across the globe today are preaching. And in one way, that sounds so easy. Just repent and be saved. Repent and be forgiven of your sins, but repentance requires humility. And that's the difficult rub for many of us. No one can repent without first becoming humble. And to repent means humbling yourself like a child. Humility leads to repentance. And friends, repentance leads to salvation. Salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God comes only through repentance. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said it this way, No one, I tell you, 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And when he uses the word perish, he's not talking about just, just dying. He's talking about dying and being separated from God for all of eternity. I want to be very clear on this point, so listen to me carefully here. You can be religious and not be saved. You can be great in the church and not be saved. You can do great things for your community and mankind and not be saved. You can be very learned in theology and doctrine and all the things of the Bible and not be saved. Unless you repent, is what Jesus says. Repentance, salvation only comes through repentance. In Acts chapter 2, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whenever I have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, I I very often go to to Romans chapter 10. I love to read these words to them where it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now this verse very simply makes clear that the requirement for salvation is to confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Both of these things require humble repentance. Confessing Jesus as Lord recognizes that Jesus alone has the right to rule your life, which means you do not have the right to rule your life. Jesus alone is worthy of honor and worship, which means you do not receive the honor and worship. It requires that you humbly repent of placing yourself in the place of authority and rule of your life. Believing that God raised him from the dead recognizes that Jesus alone is righteous. Jesus alone is the hope of salvation. Jesus alone is the true eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. And it requires you humbly repent, trusting in your own, uh, repent of trusting in your own righteousness and denying the truth of the gospel. Friends, salvation comes by no other means but through repentance. That's why I mean you can be a great and mighty church person and not be saved. Because unless you've repented, unless you've repented, you've not been saved. You can know great theology and doctrine and be a brilliant Bible scholar, not be saved, because unless you've repented, there is no salvation. You can do amazing things for our community. You can be celebrated and lauded as a great leader and and, and, and culture changer, but unless you have repented of your sins, you cannot be saved. That's why Jesus says, and this is, I think, the hardest thing of this passage, greatness comes by submission. That's an ugly word in our culture today, submission. We don't like it. I don't think people have ever liked it. Because it means, by definition, that you are denying your will and way and letting something or someone else rule your life. But listen to me. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes by submission. Salvation is the only way to be great in the kingdom. The disciples ask about place, rank, and importance. But friends, these are the things that are important in this world. You ever noticed when you meet people, when you greet people, one of the first things in the conversation is you want to figure out um, their place, their rank, and importance, who they are, what they've done, 
How important are they? Because we're always sizing ourselves up. Am I better than? Am I less than? Am I more powerful than? Am I less powerful than? Am I more significant than? Am I less significant than? Jesus points to humility and the hope of salvation as the source of greatness. Greatness in the kingdom is dependent on submission to the will of God. Submission to what God celebrates, what God honors, and makes great, and make great his will and his truth. Kingdom greatness will not come through the common ways of man. Kingdom greatness comes only by fulfilling the will of God. And to fulfill the will of God requires you repent, repentance that leads to salvation, salvation that leads to submission to God's will, and submission to God's will that leads to the fulfillment of his plans. This is what kingdom greatness is all about. Every morning uh, before I start my day, um, I like to run. And I have the same playlist I listen to every morning. And so the songs in my playlist repeat over and over and over again. And so they're sort of like, if you listen to something long enough, it just kind of becomes the background music of the, the soundtrack of your life. Now, some of you are not old enough to recognize these lyrics, but I want to read a, the lyrics of a chorus. Some of you will instantly know, some of you won't. All right, here they are. Glory days, well, they'll pass you by. You know what I'm talking about yet? Oh, I see some 80s and 90s people out there. Glory days will pass you by. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days, glory days. Anybody know? Let me just see. Oh, I'm a little disappointed. I thought, all right, some of you are. Bruce Springsteen wrote that. The title of the song is Glory Days. And the whole song is about a guy who was great in high school. I mean, he has some successes in high school. And he, he sees a friend, and, and, and they spend their evening talking about the glory days, the height of their life when they were in high school and they won the championship and all those sort of things. Now, friends, most of us can identify with that. Because whether or not you are a state champion or not, you've got a glory day, don't you? When things were going right and things were successful, maybe you were at the peak of whatever it is you were doing, and those were the glory days. And sometimes, sometimes we get stuck in those moments, and we just keep talking about them over and over again, long past when they're done. And the great theologian Bruce Springsteen says, glory days will pass you by. And he wasn't wrong about that. If, if the height of your glory is the things of this world. Friends, I want to make a great distinction. If greatness and glory is dependent upon you, if it comes at all, it will pass you by and more quickly than you can imagine be in the rearview mirror. But for those who know Jesus, listen to me, for those who know Jesus, who have repented of their sins, been saved and have as their hope entrance into the kingdom of God, glory days are not something we have done Glory days are days still to come. Isn't that good? And here's the brilliance, glory, and goodness of the glory of God and the greatness of God. The Bible says that as we come to know the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the greatness of God, that's not something that we experience and then it fades. It's something that it, we experience and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And in heaven, the glory days to come are always more and greater and more glorious than the glory days we've already known. Bruce Springsteen said the glory days will pass you by. But I want to say to you, dear friends, 
For those of you who know Jesus, glory days are still yet to come. Becoming great cannot be about the strength of man. It is always fleeting. It is always failing. It is always passing away. Becoming great according to the word of God comes through repentance. Confession of Jesus as Lord. Salvation through the forgiveness of your sins. Entrance into the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom comes through humility and submission. That your glory is not about who you are. Your glory is about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.